2: Yes, indeed it is. And a good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Wednesday. It's the 25th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord 2020. They finally have a deal. And I really, really hate reporting it that way. I really hate discussing it in those those terms because it wasn't not a deal. It really wasn't. This wasn't a matter of two sides that just couldn't quite get their acts together. This was one side torpedoing a very obvious and simplistic uh, package of relief, economic, financial, budgetary relief to all Americans, including American small businesses. And yes, gasp, those dastardly corporations that employ millions of, sm- of, uh, of Americans as well. There was one side that was holding up the entire thing, trying to slide in all kinds of pork for all kinds of projects that they find important to, I don't know, how did James Clyburn uh, word it, reshaping this country and our vision? And that's a paraphrase. They were trying to use what should have been a simple economic relief package into advancing all of their socialist dreams. It did not work. And finally, after more negotiating, and again, I cannot stand uh, suggesting or, uh, excuse me, describing it in that manner because it really shouldn't have been. It was already negotiated. The original Republican written deal or bill, rather, that um, was written in the Senate with consultation with uh, Senate Democrats is the one that they eventually decided on with very few changes. But you know what this was all about. For the last 72 hours, Hugh Hewitt correctly calls it 72 hours of shame for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and other Democrat leadership. All they wanted to do was delay the inevitable. Delay the relief coming to American families. Why? Well, because it's going to harm the economy just a little bit more. The more we can damage the economy, the Democrats' reason the more damage it does to Donald Trump come November. The harder it is to dig out of this thing over the summer and in the early fall, the harder it is for Donald Trump to run on his number one issue. And that is economic strength and, and record unemployment numbers. That's it. That's just it. The stock market kept tanking every time there was a delay. It's been tanking for you know the better part of the last two weeks. And every time that there's a hint of a relief package being sent uh, to the president's desk, suddenly Wall Street rallies. Okay, now we're going somewhere. So what do they have to do? Slam the brakes on that. Hold on. Nope, nope. We don't have a deal. This is uh, too pro-corporation and not not pro-worker enough. Uh, we got to go back and look at this again. Why? They knew what they were going to do. They knew how they were going to vote. They knew what this is all about. And what happens? Seriously. The only thing that happened is that more Americans lost their jobs. While the Democratic members of Congress dithered on this, more people lost their jobs, more companies are hurt, more people lost their lives, more people get sick. It's just, let's delay the inevitable in order to harm the country because that harms our political opponent. There is no other way to say it. Here was the announcement, announcement from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell.
3: At last... We have a deal. After days of intense discussions, the Senate has reached a bipartisan agreement on a historic relief package for this pandemic. It will rush new resources onto the front lines of our nation's health care fight, and it will inject trillions of dollars of cash into the economy as fast as possible to help American workers, families, small businesses, and industries make it through this disruption and emerge, on the other side, ready to soar. The Bipartisan Cares Act will squarely address each of the four big priorities that I laid out in my legislation at the beginning of the process about a week ago. It will rush financial assistance to Americans, through direct checks to households, from the middle class on down, and through a significant and creative expansion of unemployment insurance during this emergency. It will deliver historic relief to Main Street America through hundreds of billions of dollars in emergency loans so more small businesses can survive this and keep paying their workers. It will help secure our economic foundations and stabilize key national industries to prevent as many layoffs as possible, while keeping big companies accountable, as both sides have sought to do. And of course, it will push major relief to hospitals and health care providers invest in new medicines and vaccines so we can beat this virus faster and help get more equipment and masks to the frontline heroes who put themselves at risk to care for patients in effect this is a wartime level of investment into our nation the men and women it is indeed
2: that and uh, there is a lot to like about this bill just like there was 3 days ago when this was already written before Nancy Pelosi uh, intervened, came back from San Francisco and just uh, torpedoed the entire thing. Now, here's the one problem that we still have to address. I had two different people text me this morning who are just friends who said, hey, do you know how much we're going to get? I heard they got their deal done. Do you know how much we're going to get? And I said, well, I don't know 100% because there are a few different factors. Number one, how many children do you have number two, what are they going to do with children who are technically adults like age eighteen but live in the home as uh you know as uh dependents for taxpayers? Do they get the five hundred dollars so the 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 numbers that that are floating around in this bill are roughly twelve hundred dollars per individual making under seventy five thousand dollars twenty four hundred for married couples filing jointly. Making under one hundred fifty thousand. I also saw another number that said under ninety eight thousand and combined under one ninety eight, plus five hundred dollars per dependent child in the household. So I don't know if they are going to consider eighteen year olds dependents or not. And if they're not, as an adult at age eighteen, are they getting their own twelve hundred dollar check? Some of that is up in the air right now. But the big reason why this is up in the air. As I told both people who texted me this morning, who were friends, the big reason why is because this isn't a done deal yet. Because Nancy Pelosi's House hasn't voted on this yet. This is just a deal between the Senate and the White House. White House negotiators and Senate leaders put this thing together. We still don't have Nancy Pelosi's Wicked Witch of the West signature on the bottom of this thing. So we don't know how this is going to go. So don't start counting your dollars yet. Don't start applying them, figuring out how much you're getting, and then putting that, okay, we'll spend this much on our, on our water bill, this much on our insurance, this much we'll put aside for food, etc. Cetera. Et cetera. Don't start spending it yet. If the House gets off of its rear end, if they vote on this today, first of all, Mitch McConnell said they will meet at noon today. So we're about three hours away from that, but did not set a time for an actual vote. By rule, the procedural vote to begin debate on this would happen at 1 p.m. unless the Senate scraps that. So the announcement of a deal would indicate that perhaps they don't need to, to debate anymore in the Senate. They will just have a vote at some time today. But then it still has to go to the holders of the purse strings, which is the House of Representatives. That's just the way that it works. And they're going to have to uh, get it past Nancy Pelosi and her Band of of of, I'm sorry. Band of of criminals who took Americans hostage over the course of the last few days. They just did. If things get done quickly today, if there is a Senate vote today, and if Pelosi doesn't try to jam more money for Planned Parenthood into it on the back on the uh, on the back end, and and there is no guarantee that that will not happen. We may. While the Senate Senate Democrats may have agreed with Senate Republicans and the White House on getting this thing done, if you look at everything that was included in that unbelievable bill put forth by Pelosi yesterday, the federal $15 minimum wage, which will crush small businesses, permanent paid leave, the required early voting and same-day registration, full-on 100% vote-by-mail, was in that thing. Um, retirement plans for community newspaper employees. A bailout on the Postal Service. Bailout on uh, on uh, student loans and student loan debt. Money for studying the climate change mitigation efforts. I mean, all of this stuff. Publication and reporting of greenhouse gas statistics for individual flights. All of this stuff that had nothing to do with... Um, the Chinese coronavirus, and the response to it, which, of course, has led us into this economic nightmare. All kinds of things were included in that thing. Do you think she's just going to abandon all of those because the Senate Democrats agreed? And as I started to say about Planned Parenthood, not a lot of people realize this, but Nancy Pelosi already tried. She and Chuck Schumer already uh, tried to get Planned Parenthood funding into the coronavirus relief package if it was not already apparent that they're not serious about getting something done to provide relief to American workers and to small businesses it should be now reported by the Washington Examiner as of last night a few hours before the agreed upon deal which was around 1.30 in the morning House Speaker Nancy Pelosi Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer are reportedly lobbying on behalf of Planned Parenthood a nonprofit organization that cannot legally receive taxpayer dollars under the Hyde Amendment and demanding that Senate Republicans include the abortion provider in its stimulus relief package. The Democrats want abortion providers to be eligible for aid under the small business portion of the nearly $2 trillion stimulus package, according to Bloomberg News. Again, this quoted in the Washington Times. This is absurd. The stimulus package is supposed to provide economic relief to businesses that must make money but can't as a result of the coronavirus shutdown. Planned Parenthood does not need to turn a profit, or so they say. So why would the abortion provider be trying to get a hold of federal funding? The maneuver is just the latest that proves Planned Parenthood is not the organization it claims to be. It's not a medical center or health care provider. Indeed, the abortion provider isn't even good at disguising its real aim, money. Planned parenthood's clinics are still open, its employees still have jobs, customers are still paying for its services, yet the abortion provider and its democratic ad- advocates would have us believe that its final uh, uh excuse me financial situation is just as dire as the thousands of small businesses that have been forced to shut down entirely. So The reason I bring that in, again, is because literally as late as a few hours before Mitch McConnell announced that deal that I just played for you, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were battling and trying to make sure that Planned Parenthood got some of this funding in this package. So what else will she slip in now that this goes, or once this goes today, at some point after the Senate votes, over to the House? What else will she put in to torpedo the deal? If it gets done today... Checks can go out as early as the first week of April. So we're talking, what, a week and a half, roughly. That's when they would first start going out. Now, how, what order they go, I don't know. How soon you'll get yours, I don't know. But I do know that they would start cutting the checks the first week of April for whatever that amount is going to be. Do not start counting those dollars yet. Do not start allocating them for your personal needs yet. Because Nancy Pelosi is still she's still a, an obstacle in the middle of all of this. Alright, it's 920. We'll take a quick time out. I want to take your phone because i got a couple of great guests coming on today. I mentioned about them trying to slide in um, relief for, not just relief for, for um, people paying back student loans, but flat out student loan debt forgiveness, which again is a Bernie Sanders AOC socialist uh, you know, idea. And they tried to jam that in there. We're going to talk to an expert on that coming up. Lindsay Burke, a Ph.D., uh, wrote a piece for uh, The Daily Signal and for Heritage, Canceling Student Loan Debt is Not Smart or Fair as a Response to COVID-19. We'll talk to her at 9.35. And then at the top of the next hour, I frequently tell you that I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on the radio. So I can't answer all of your medical questions about uh, the uh, Wuhan coronavirus. So I said, you know what we better do? Get a doctor. And we're going to do that. Dr. John Davidson from uh, University Hospitals and Case Western is going to be joining us at 1010 to, 10, 10 to answer your questions about coronavirus right here at AM 1420 The Answer. Well, you can't take the money and run with it yet. It's not guaranteed. There are obstacles in the uh, House of Representatives. We'll see how committed they are to the American people versus their own political agendas and their own uh, ongoing attempt to do what Barack Obama once promised to do back in 2008, fundamentally transform the country. Are they willing to let more Americans die? Are they willing to let more businesses close? Are they willing to let more people go on unemployment, more people's retirement uh, be destroyed? Are they willing to do that in order to fundamentally transform the country into the type of socialist utopia that they envision? We'll see. We'll see. Maybe uh, as uh, as late as uh, this afternoon, there should be a vote in the Senate early in the afternoon. Then it'll go to the House, and if they don't just automatically use unanimous consent on this thing and get it to the President's desk, so the Treasury can start cutting those checks, then we'll know the answer. Yes, they're willing to let people die. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten. We got a call from John here. We'll take before the bottom of the hour. John, you're on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Go right ahead.
4: Good morning. Uh, this is just a question you could ask the doctor for other people. Okay. I'm very familiar with the drug. I've used last year when I went to overseas. State Department used to normally announce, and Case Western University, Matter Building, in the, I don't know the exact room now, you take this particular drug, malaria-infected countries, before you travel, two days before you travel, then you do the overseas, you take every day, come back for a couple more days, It's like aspirin. It's a wonder drug in many ways. It used to be sold for leg cramps, severe arthritis. I'm not a doctor, but I've used it, at least going back to 1980, I would say, every trip I took, I can take care of it. We don't exactly know. It's been a bark of a tree for years, like aspirin, for many years. And please ask the question, has it been any double-blind study to show the efficacy? Botox was invented for something else, but now we use it for, I won't want to go into details. It's not a time to joke around. This well, overpromise, so. overpromise can hurt people because preemies never get to hug the mom. How is that? How is that a punchline? Preemies come out too early, and they don't get hugged by mom and drink mother's milk, and there's not enough space in the body to put up electrodes. Because I they wrote a paper on me in Mayo clinic in 1960, January 6th. So I know what's going on here. And I'm not well, let me to let me people. let
2: me respond to that this way uh, before the bottom of the hour. And thank you, John, for the call. I will absolutely ask that of the doctor at ten ten. Doctor John Davidson will be joining us from University uh, Hospitals and uh, Case Western Reserves Medical School, and uh, he will answer your questions about the uh, the Wuhan coronavirus. Um, I don't think there has been any false promises. I don't think there has been too much hope being pushed. I really don't. I think what President Trump said from the beginning about the uh, optimism that he has on this is that it could be, emphasis on the word could, it could be a game changer, especially because of the results that they're seeing when it is combined with ZPAC. that the the malaria drug you're talking about, which is hydrochloroquine or chloroquine, that these are are showing extremely promising uh, results. And also, he said, it has been proven to be safe because, as you just said, people have been taking it for many, many years. It has been very well accepted as a drug for uh, prevention and for treatment of certain things. And as you said, it's kind of known as the anti-malaria drug, but it's used for other things, too, kind of all-purpose, like aspirin. So you're right. It is safe. It has been safe. Is it effective in treating the coronavirus? There is a lot of evidence that says yes. It very, very, very well, uh, well could be. But I don't think anybody's overpromising in, in, in saying, okay, we have the cure now. It's all good. Everybody go back to, to your normal business. Uh, and we will indeed talk to the doctor about that, I promise. All right, 930, let's get news. Now, AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 935, we continue on AM 1420, The Answer good news is that the Senate and the White House yesterday agreed bipartisan bill, uh, which essentially is the same bill that they were pushing three days ago, uh, but that Senate Democrats torpedoed. Rather, I should say just uh, Democrat leadership torpedoed. They wanted to throw in a whole bunch of extra pork projects and uh, uh, spending that had nothing to do with relief from the Wuhan coronavirus. And uh, one of the things that they tried to jam into it, which caused us this 72-hour delay, which is just making things worse for people, is student loan debt forgiveness. Now, this is not a new thing. Of course, we know that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, many Democrats have been screaming that all student debt loans should be wiped out, uh, the college should be free for everybody, etc. Uh, terrible idea, particularly as it pertains to trying to include it into a, uh, an emergency relief bill because the economy is struggling so much under the weight of this uh, shutdown that we're all dealing with. And joining us now to discuss this is uh, Lindsay Burke. She is a Ph.D. She's the director of the Center for Education Policy, and she researches and writes on federal and state education issues. Uh, Dr. Burke, good morning. How are you?
5: I'm great. Thank you for having me.
2: I appreciate you coming on. Canceling student loan debt isn't smart nor fair as a response to COVID-19. That's the latest piece that you wrote about this. Before we get into the specifics of the response to COVID-19, um, why do you suppose it is, as, as an expert in education policy, which you are, Why do you suppose it is that there is this, I don't know if I should use the word sudden, but it's certainly increasing in recent months and really in the last couple of years, um, this movement to wipe out debt, to not make people responsible for the debts that they voluntarily took on when they signed on the dotted lines and said, I want to go to college, I'll pay this back later?
5: You know, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head. These individuals, Americans who took out student loan debt, they did exactly that. They signed their name on a dotted line on a contract and agreed to pay that debt back once they concluded their higher education experience. And in the aggregate, there is a lot of outstanding student loan debt. We have about $1.6 trillion today cumulatively in outstanding student loan debt among all Americans, which exceeds credit card debt, by the way. So it is a tremendous amount in the aggregate. But I think that's the key. When we look at individual level student debt, on average for a graduate, uh, among those who hold debt, it's about $30,000. Now, that's a non-trivial amount of money. That's a lot of money. But if you graduate college and find a job that actually does relay back to the degree that you pursued, that can be a worthwhile amount of money. You will likely end up making more than your non-graduate counterparts. And so one could argue that it is, in fact, worth it. But I think... You know, policymakers on the left have just increasingly shifted toward this idea of student loan forgiveness, which is really an inequitable way to think about higher education financing.
2: Well, yeah, uh, inequity is the word here. Let's let's talk about what happens if we don't, if they don't pay that back. If the average is thirty thousand dollars per uh, per graduate who took out those loans, and representatives like, as you point out in your article, Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar. They want uh they've introduced a bill that would essentially give every penny of that back or, uh, to them or essentially uh, um, abdicate them from their responsibility of paying it back um, to the tune of exactly thirty thousand dollars what's the impact of that on the federal government which which backed those loans and the banks which made those loans
5: yeah and that's the key there so it used to be the case that the federal government from about nineteen sixty five largely toward the 1990s they underwrote private student loans, which in and of itself was a significant taxpayer guarantee, you had the full faith and credit of Uncle Sam behind private student loans. And so still some taxpayer exposure there. Where we are today, though, is dramatically different. Today, the federal government originates and services 90% of all student loans. And so that means that, as you pointed out, when students default on their loans or mean there is generous loan forgiveness policies like what we're hearing proposed now. Mm -hmm. That means that American taxpayers pick up the tab regardless of whether or not those taxpayers went to college themselves. And we should bear in mind that still today, two-thirds of Americans do not have bachelor's degrees. And this is why I say it's inequitable. Those two-thirds would pick up the burden, the tax burden, for the other third of Americans who went to college and earned a bachelor's degree. So that's where the inequity, inequity, inequity really comes into play there is when you forgive those loans with the federal government, federal taxpayers owning so much of that loan debt, it gets passed on to all Americans.
2: Yeah, that is such a great point because, you know, high school graduates who just go right into the workforce or maybe they go to the military or maybe they go to a trade school and, 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 and learn there for six or 12 months or something and don't come out with a ton of debt and end up having to pay for everybody else. Uh, that is That's not right. equal. Uh, that, that is unfair. And, and taking that to another level, I did not know this, that of that 1.6 trillion that you said in outstanding student loan debt today, 40% of that is held by graduate students. So this isn't just the four year, you know, uh, Bachelor's degree uh, seekers. We're talking about people go on to advanced degrees or at least in pursuit of them. Forty percent of them. Yes. And what would, would if those dollars are forgiven again as part of that one point six, now you add, you know, the bachelor's degree folks as far as the inequities of who has to pay back for those things.
5: Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, that those bachelor's degree holders are now paying off the master's degree holders right. and the professional degree holders as well. <laughs> that's absolutely right. I mean, 40% of that student loan debt, so the $1.6 trillion, is held by grad students. That's about $37 billion annually that goes out the door to graduate students or students pursuing professional degrees. And the other thing that's really astonishing is that 80% of federal subsidies that are currently provided through income-driven repayment, so you get to make your payment based on income, so it fluctuates. There's a subsidy there. Eighty percent of those federal subsidies are going to graduate students over the next decade, and the Congressional Budget Office estimates that will cost taxpayers $167 billion over that next 10 years. I mean, it's just a breathtaking amount of money overall. And again, when we have all of this uh, federal money being effectively dumped out of airplanes onto universities, to quote Richard Vetter, an economist at the University of Ohio, you put no downward pressure on universities to keep their costs in check. And so we've created this vicious lending and spending cycle that will only get exacerbated further if we continue to loan forgiveness policies or to make those policies more and more generous year after year.
2: We are talking with Lindsay Burke. She is a Ph.D., director of the Center for Education Policy. Um, In this piece, you also gave me something else I did not know um, about the amount of debt that is held by people who are of means versus those who are in the lower income levels. I don't know if I would say below the poverty line, but uh, as you Mm -hmm. point out, households with income below $27,000 per year hold just 12% of all outstanding student loan debt compared with the more affluent households, those in the top 25% of earners, who hold 34% of all student loan debt. Um, Can you make some... This, according to analysis by the Urban Institute, can you make some sense out of that for me because... Most of us would think that if you are in the more affluent households you are not getting access to loans you are pretty much expected to pay your way if you are in the more in the middle to the lower middle class uh that's that's when you kind of have to take out those loans because they're not going to give you grants if you make too much and they're not going to you know they are going to give you financial aid in the form of those loans so uh, why why do the affluent households own most of this debt
5: yeah. So part of this, a big part of this is what you pointed out, that if you are in that lower income um, uh, earnings tier, that you do qualify for more of the grant money. And of course, grants don't have to be repaid. So this would be something like Pell Grant. And then sort of moving up that income ladder there, if you're in the middle income uh, tier, you do also qualify for subsidized student loans as well, up to a, a level. And then in the higher end, You don't qualify for those subsidized loans anymore, but you can still access unsubsidized student loans. And that simply means that as you have the loan and as you're in school, the interest does continue to accrue if it's unsubsidized. The other thing that's factoring into that is that that top 10%, a part of that may also be accounted for in that graduate student number as well. So taking on more debt in pursuit of medical degrees, law degrees, et cetera, so those professional careers. But this was a really interesting analysis that Urban did a couple of years ago now, laying out all of those numbers. And one thing that they concluded in that piece was that they said, in other words, the quote is, education debt is disproportionately concentrated among the well-off. And I, I think that was a really poignant way to sort of outline exactly what it means when we talk about loan forgiveness and how it would impact all Americans.
2: And that, and that, you know, that should strike a chord with people because if you give them debt forgiveness, you know, the people who are well off and pass that on to the lower, to the middle, uh, class earners in this country, it is, uh, uh, you know, th- that is something that I don't think sit- would sit very well with most Americans. Um, you have a PhD, so you you've been through three levels of this thing. You've you have you you got a bachelor's degree, you got a master's degree, you went on to get your doctorate. So I would assume you accumulated a heck of a large number of loans. And I I don't mean to personalize this, but I'm just going to say you paid it back, right? I mean, and, and I you probably did, didn't. I you did. probably weren't making a ton of money when you first got out, uh, but you found that a way to correct. get done what you have to get done, right?
5: You have hit the head the nail on the head again on all points there. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just from a personal level. You know, when you go through three different levels of education, you do typically end up occurring a fair amount of debt, and I definitely did that. And definitely on the front end, wasn't earning a lot, but, you know, you took away at it and pay it back and, yeah, eventually paid it, paid it off. <laughs>
2: And that's that's called responsibility. And uh, I think if you allow people to shirk that responsibility, I think it's only going to build upon itself. Right. Once we give a a student loan debt forgiveness for all of those currently holding loans, what do you what do what do current high school students what do they see? They see I'm going to college. I didn't think I could go before, but I can now because if I graduate or when I graduate, if I have a bunch of debt, I don't have to pay it back. Look what they just did. It's a precedent here that I think would just have you know far-reaching implications or ramifications into the future. we kind of set that trend.
5: Yeah, that's right. And I think also there are sort of downstream negative effects of this, right? So are you going to make decisions that you otherwise would not have made if you know it is all air quote free on the back of taxpayers? So are you going to pursue different areas of study maybe if you know that this is at no personal cost to you at the point of delivery? Um, Would you have made different choices in terms of the career path that you were going to go down and the courses of study that you're taking if you knew that you were taking out a loan that you had to repay.
0: Or Um, even just going to
2: college at all, Dr. Burke, because college is not for everybody. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, and that's not a judgmental type of, of statement, but college is not for everybody. There are a lot of kids who struggle to get out of high school. They don't know where they want to go next. They're not college material, and they certainly can't afford to pay for something that they wouldn't be good at, but if they find out it's going to be free... You know, and they won't have to pay back their loans. You're going to have kids who don't belong in college getting into state colleges with low standards and just taking up space and saying, I'm going to drink and party for as many semesters as they'll let me be here, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with my life later. And that doesn't enhance the in-college experience for anybody.
5: Well, and to your point, we know that 44% of recent college graduates are in jobs that do not require a college degree. So that really underscores the point that you're making now, that it's not the right path for everybody. And again, to your point, that's not a judgmental call at all. It's just some people are better served uh, pursuing options that um, are either career and technical in nature or could give them short-term entry into the job market. And so I think it is important to keep those stats in mind. I mean, 44%, of those recent college graduates not being in jobs that require a bachelor's degree, Mm. I I do think really suggests that that you're right on that point.
2: And another negative on that, too, if people go into college who shouldn't be uh, necessarily and don't need a degree to go do what they're going to do, it takes people out of the skilled trade schools. You know, this, this country is facing a shortage. Uh, according to virtually all uh, estimates, we're facing a shortage of skilled laborers. People aren't going to the welding schools and to the electrician schools and to the other places where they can be play such vital roles in, the American, in our American society. If they think, well, I can go to college instead, and, and it takes them away from the track that they should have been on and would have been on, which is so vital, I, I think that hurts us all as well.
5: Yeah, that's right. And a big piece of that puzzle is that the federal government, through these generous loan policies, is favoring the traditional four-year college route. <laughs> so they are really playing favorites in that regard. And it says, you know, if you're a student and you're thinking, well, I could go and pursue a trade and get into the, the workforce immediately, or, you know, I can get a federal loan with no credit check and no uh, regard for my ability to repay it long-term and various generous interest rates and loan repayment terms. Maybe I will take that leisurely four- or six-year route through Mm -hmm. undergrad. And so, you know, that's what I'm saying. By having the federal government sort of play favorites in the lending market, this is the, the outcome that we end up seeing. And it has had, I think, a negative effect overall on the economy.
2: We are talking to Dr. Lindsay Burke. Last question before you go, Dr. Burke. I want to make it clear in case we didn't. You are not opposed to some sort of uh relief for student loan um debtors right now. Uh those those who are paying back student loans as far as de- uh, deferments or delays in payments being due interest free for a few months just as part of coronavirus relief in a in a particular bill. It's just we don't want student loan debt forgiveness. You're okay with deferments That's right. or delays, right?
5: That's right. So any uh, if it's a stimulus package or whatever the Senate and the House agree to uh, with regard to the coronavirus uh, at the moment, it has to be temporary and targeted and tied toward the pandemic. And that's where this proposal to forget student loans completely falls short. But on the temporary emergency piece, if they stick, if Congress sticks to suspending student loan payments and interest, for the next three to six months, that is a fair, targeted response to the emergency in which we find ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. Moving beyond that to total loan forgiveness does not.
2: Temporary and targeted relief. I think that's a uh, reasonable relief, and that's uh, what's being advocated here by Lindsay Burke. Dr. Lindsay Burks, director of the Burke, excuse me, director of the Center for Education Policy. Uh, terrific analysis, Dr. Burke, I really appreciate that. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. You too. uh, Thank you as well. All right, 9.51, let's take a time out here. Come back. I've got time for a call or two before the top of the hour. Do not forget at the top of the hour, after the top of the hour, uh, another doctor, this time from the medical field, uh, Dr. John Davidson is going to be joining us from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and from uh, University uh, Health Centers, and he's going to answer all of your questions about coronavirus. Obviously, I say it every day. I'm not a doctor, but this is what I observe. Well, it's time to get a doctor who can do this a little bit more uh, um, expertly than I can. So Dr. Davidson will be coming up after the top of the hour right here on AM 1420 The Answer. All right,
0: 956.
2: We continue again. I I, uh, I put the um, latest Facebook post of my next guest, uh, Doctor uh, Davidson, on my Facebook page, and um, he is he is essentially kind of giving you the latest as he understands it from what's going on in other places uh, around the world, including China, where this whole thing originated, and including in Italy. And, um, I put that up there uh, just so you can kind of get an idea of what we're going to be talking about. And I'm asking people to give me your questions for Dr. Davidson when he comes onto the air. And, uh, so you can ask them by way of putting it in the comments section of that Facebook post. And you can find, me, excuse me, you can find me there at France Radio and at Bob France, which is my private page. Um, and I'll make it a, it, it'll be a public, uh, post so that you can, everybody can see it even if we're not quote unquote friends on Facebook. So I want your questions either in the comment section of the Facebook post or call me in the ten o'clock hour when Dr. Davidson is on. He said he would be happy to answer your questions firsthand. So what questions do you have about the virus, about the trend, about flattening the curve, about the social distancing, about where the virus lives, about uh how long we can expect this, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Doctor Davidson answer all those questions, whatever you have, uh coming up at ten ten. For now, though, T.J. in Cleveland. Go ahead, T.J. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, I was reading in the paper today, you know, they may be canceling proms and uh, senior trips, and I know that can be a big disappointment, but, you know, I tell these kids, if this, you're going to see a lot bigger disappointments in life than this, and, you know, I didn't go to my prom, Bob, mostly because I come from a big family. There just wasn't any extra money to buy prom tickets. Rent a tuxedo, even buy a corsage for a girl, and I couldn't see myself going to the prom on the bus. Uh, and my senior trip ended up a tour in Vietnam. They'll get over it, and if this is the biggest disappointment they're going to experience in life, then I say they are truly blessed. I think that's well said, TJ. Thank you so much for the call. It's a great point. Yeah, I read another one too. I'm going to get Joanne in here, so I have to save this. I read another great, positive way of looking at this. As you talk about if these are the hardest things that people deal with, they will be very blessed. TJ said a mouthful there, and I'm going to read some commentary from somebody else. You wouldn't know. It's a football coach, uh, but I just found very pointy yesterday that I saw on Twitter, which is very similar to what TJ just said. Thank you, TJ. Joanne in Twinsburg next. Go ahead, Joanne. Morning, Bob. I uh,
5: did to what TJ just said. He's absolutely right. But this is about the student loan thing. I'm not smart enough to come up with this myself, but I did hear someone on TV a month or so ago talking about student loans, and he said, why don't these universities, these big colleges that have these huge endowments, finance these kids themselves? Let them put the money into the kids' education. Let them educate them enough so that they can pay back the dumb loans. You know, let them invest in these students. Why are we investing in them?
2: Yeah, uh, that, it's, they can uh, it's, pick
5: the best and the brightest. They've got all this money yeah, from all yeah. these endowments. Let them do it.
2: Yeah, It gives them uh, an incentive to teach would be... properly. It would be, yeah, and thank you so much. For, thank you, Joanne, for the call. No, you make you make a great point. Why does it fall on the backs of everybody else? It shouldn't. Uh, it's it's a great point that you make with all of the money that they have uh, at these, uh, these endowments for, at all these colleges. You would think that they would be the ones or should be the ones making those loans. I do appreciate it, Joanne. Thank you. Let me get a quick timeout now for the top of the hour news. And after that, as I said, we're going to talk specifically about the medical issues surrounding uh, the Chinese coronavirus. Dr. John Davidson from Case and from University Hospital joins us next on
0: three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's